Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Liverpool Echo, Teesside Gazette and Lancashire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, covering the North every day with an email newsletter that drops in your inbox just before lunchtime and brings you up to date with the latest political news from our region. All you need to do to sign up is visit www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. Today, we're bringing you the very latest insight and analysis on the document that may, and I emphasise may, define the future of the North for decades to come. The levelling up white paper, all 332 pages of it, was published today after a long wait for Boris Johnson to finally spell out the details of the mantra that's been in use since before the 2019 general election. Michael Gove, a Conservative cabinet minister who has already brought reforming zeal to education and the environment, has spelled out at least some of how he intends to close the North-South divide and add a bit more ballast to a country that he describes as being like a jet plane with just one engine. So here is a short clip of Mr Gove in the Commons today. This white paper lays out a long-term economic and social plan to make opportunity more equal. It shifts power and opportunity towards the North and Midlands, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. It guarantees increased investment in overlooked and undervalued communities, in research and development, in education and skills, in transport and broadband, in urban parks and decent homes, in grassroots sports and local culture, and in fighting crime and tackling antisocial behaviour. It gives local communities the tools to tackle rogue landlords, dilapidated high streets and neglected green spaces. And it demonstrates that this People's government is keeping faith with the working people of this country by allowing them to take back control of their lives, their communities and their futures. And I commend this statement to the House. So to discuss whether Mr Gove is going down the right path, we have got a stellar panel of experts. We've got Jen Williams, the Manchester Evening News political and investigations editor. And I'm also delighted to be joined by Professor of Government Practice and Vice Dean for Social Responsibility in the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester, Andy Westwood. And to complete our top lineup, we have Nicola Headlam, the Chief Economist and Head of Public Sector at Red Flag Alert, but who was until quite recently the Head of Northern Powerhouse for the Government's Cities and Local Growth Unit. Well, we have a great panel. These guys really know what they're talking about. But I have to say, as a caveat, that despite weeks of build-up and the press release announcing the white paper coming yesterday. The actual document itself dropped a little over an hour ago, I think. So we've all been frantically uh, speed reading in the style of an undergraduate who hasn't got their their dissertation done on time. Uh, But let's start with what we knew at the start of today, which is that levelling up, we're going to have 12 missions which will judge uh, its success or otherwise. Those targets are, by 2030, pay, employment and productivity will have risen in all parts of the UK, with each area having a globally competitive city. Domestic public investment in research and development outside the South East will increase by 40%. Local public transport will be significantly closer to the standards of London. The UK will have nationwide gigabit capable broadband and 4G coverage with 5G coverage for the majority of the population. Some 90% of primary school kids in England will have achieved expected standards in reading, writing and maths. 200,000 more people in England will complete high quality, high quality skills training annually. The gap in healthy life expectancy between the highest and lowest areas will have narrowed. There will be improved well-being in all parts of the UK. All parts of the UK will have improved pride in place, uh, which will be assessed by measures like people satisfaction with their town centre. People renting their homes will have a secure path to ownership with the number of first time buyers increasing. Homicide, serious violence and neighbourhood crime will have fallen. And every part of England that wants one will have a devolution deal, possibly a London style devolution deal and a simplified long term funding settlement. So I think most people would agree that these are good things that we would like to have. But my first question to you all is, are these the right metrics that levelling up should be judged against? And do we even need these kind of missions to sort of judge the success of otherwise of levelling up? Andy, I'll I'll start with you. Are these the right metrics? Um, Well, let me start. I think I think the missions are pretty good. Um, You know, as a whole, they concentrate on some of the right things. 
that you would expect to see and lots of things that we're already familiar with. Um, when you start getting down into the metrics, there are some questions. In some cases, the metrics don't exist yet. Uh, in other cases, they're pretty modest. Um, so taking the sort of skills target, for example, that, that just about replaces some of the learners that have been lost over the last decade. So, um, you know, there are some, some quite important questions as we look at the metrics that they've chosen. But to, to answer your question about whether missions are a good idea, I think, I think they are, because a, a lot of what Gove is trying to do here is to bring different parts of government together. And that's, that's fiercely difficult to do. And so setting, setting some cross, often, they're not all cross-government metrics and missions, but, but by setting some that are cross-government, what he's trying to do is draw different departments into uh, achieving the things that he thinks are important. Um, so, so by and large, I think it's a, a pretty decent approach, um, but some questions about some of the specific metrics that he's chosen. Uh, Nicola, what's your view? Agreed, missions are good. And the mission paper from the Bennett Institute, which uh, everybody knows, um, Professor Ron Martin is the kind of god of these matters um, and obviously has got, he's built every data set alive to show re worsening regional inequality. And the beginning of his conversation is always, I built a data set which showed, and it shows like, you know, every bit of data forever. And Ron um, and uh, his co-authors just wrote for the Regional Studies Association, the levelling up thing, and they were into missions. And Diane Coyle at the Bennett Institute. Yeah, not bad. Missions, missions good. Andy's quite right. It's the cross, the cross Whitehall part is, has been cleverly achieved. But Gove had done that before, because the minute that he was made Secretary of State, he re-established a cabinet subcommittee for economic development which had been fallen into, um, that wasn't, hadn't been meeting for a long time. And because Michael Gove was its chair and Simon Clark was latterly of this parish, was its deputy chair from the treasury, Gove was very cleverly using the machinery of government such as it is to try and do a joined up thing, which is great, right? So that was, so that's, that was all sort of already in the bag. But having done that, therefore, this could all have been more ambitious because if, You've got a proper cabinet subcommittee which is driving this work. Um, God forbid, you know, joining up Whitehall is, is, is fiendishly difficult at the best of times. But having done that piece, then you can push on with your missions a bit because like with an outcome framework, for example, like there is in Scotland, you um, once you've got your kind of joined up bit, then you can start to have stretch targets rather than, um, I mean, it is a mixture because, as you say, the the learning one is is weird. But I mean, the economy one is so off the world impossible. I don't really know what to do with it because we haven't been going in any of those directions for forty years. Just you know, it, it, like so, it's almost like there's a lot of um, there's some sort of low hanging fruit sort of eating. But that 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 living standards one is it's absolutely for the birds at the moment. Jen, what's your what's your view? Does these these mission targets does it does this make it easier to accomplish, or or does it does it mean that it's going to be harder for Michael Gove or whoever to sort of make excuses if we're if we haven't reached some of these targets by by twenty thirty? I mean, I, I don't. It's not a bad thing, is it, to have those missions as your starting point? And I I completely agree that you know one of the biggest challenges around this whole agenda is getting the different bits of government to work uh, together. So if you've got a framework that effectively uh, kind of embeds that across different Whitehall departments, um, that's a good thing. It seems to me that, that they're a funny mixture of uh, super, super unachievably ambitious yeah. and like oddly unambitious. Like it, it's it's I, I mean, if you, th you know, eight years in some terms is a very long time and in other terms is a very short period of time. It depends on what it is that you're talking about. Right. Um, I mean, I think uh, I think the, the, the transport infrastructure target is kind of interesting because actually, I mean, eight years is basically the equivalent of two mayoral terms, isn't it? And Andy Burnham is kind of talking about trying to create a London style public transport network here, um, more or less within that 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 um frame of time so that yeah, i'm not saying ev everywhere in the country can necessarily get something that looks like london in in eight years but it ought to be kind of relatively achievable um and i mean i'm sure we'll come on to this 
at the same time, you've got kind of like other policy areas and other things that seem to be running almost in a counter direction. Yeah. And a special mention for the health target, which I don't, I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I haven't read all of it yet, but I mean, the bit that I have seen about health inequality says basically watch this space we're waiting for the department of health and social care to write a well write a white paper about this so how can you embed a target along those lines without having any kind of strategy in place to narrow health inequalities it seems completely back to front um but i mean other, other you know otherwise i agree with what um both andy and nicola have already said you have to remember in terms of health inequalities that it was hard to raise an army for the napoleonic wars from the recruiting station at the corner of Piccadilly Gardens. So, I mean, these things are entrenched, these inequalities. Like, you know, people's chests were too bad to go off and march to fight Napoleon, leading to Peterloo, as we all know. And uh, yeah, and you could be the same with a swab squad for uh, Omicron infections would be exactly the same bloody corner 200 years later. So, you know. I don't think I've got to that page. I was going to say, is there a section on Napoleonic Wars? Because yeah. it may well be. <laughs> yes. I mean, uh, as long as, as well as the Borgias, the Medicis, yeah. the Florentine. Romans. Um, yeah. I just want to say, in terms of uh, Florence, Renaissance Florence, very important to find your role in these things. You know, imagine yourself. So there was Savonarola, the mad monk who had the bonfire of the vanities, went mad, accusing everybody of corruption. I could be into that. Uh, the Borgias, you know, violent kind of assassination vibe. I could be into that. I mean, there yeah. are there are paths within Renaissance Florence. I mean, you know, cherub on couch. I could be into that. I'm just not quite sure that Cosimo the Terrible is necessarily your paradigm of hope. I think we're all imagining which current politicians fit into those uh, those uh, stereotypes that you've just you've just described. There's a few candidates I can I can think of. That's a blog, um, isn't it? At least. Absolutely. So so we know we know what the missions are, uh, and obviously with the caveat that we're still only an hour into dissecting the white paper. But what? How much evidence is there of a plan to achieve these missions within the 332 pages that? Have been published today. Obviously, we'll discount the page which describes the the world's biggest cities going back to Jericho in 700 700 BC. But I mean, we're, just as a sort of general point, open it up to you all. What 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 of what you've read so far is, is there anything that particularly catches your eye that you think you know this this actually might this actually might work? My brains trust are telling me to tell you that there is nobody quoted that isn't a white man, which is just oh nice. Know, the mm. North is is clearly not an inclusive space according to every single reference is a white man <laughs> just great I wish, I wish i could say i was surprised by that but it's uh... <laughs> yeah i know i know um one thing somebody said to me earlier on today about this someone who had a reasonable level of insight into the way that the some of the conversations that had gone on within whitehall was that there are there are elements where where gove is trying to push the envelope and that they tend to be areas in which he's got a degree of direct control himself. So um, rerouting uh, housing money out, out of London, for example, like trying to kind of get a grip on some of the funding levers that sort of sit beneath some of the, uh, some, some of the, the inequalities, but the kind of the financial mechanisms that kind of drive policies to kind of continue in the same direction. Um, and also some of the regeneration stuff in there, which I mean, you know, it is it is uh, re-announced money from the comprehensive spending review uh, for for brownfield sites and so on, but that it is stuff that he has sort of tried to kind of propel forward. Whereas there are other aspects of it where you can sort of see it hasn't landed really in the same way in other in other Whitehall departments. And I, I um, the other thing that jumps out at me is the R&D stuff, but I'll, I'll leave that probably to Andy to talk about because he knows far more about it than I do. But that, that looks kind of potentially quite significant what it could maybe do in, in places like the North and Midlands. Yeah, I, yeah. I, think, I think the R&D, that's right, um, Jen. It's, it's, um, I, I, it's difficult, you know, when you look at you look at something that is so cross government, and you kind of you, you try and read between the lines and see where are the where have the relationships between other departments worked well, and and where are they a little bit dodgy? And uh, it looks to me like the relationship between between the levelling up department and Bayes, who who run R and D, and have got a good SR settlement, um, is pretty strong. 
you know they've committed to some some stretching but achievable targets. The overall overall envelope is uh, the overall envelope is going up, and um, you know there's some some solid commitments to spend outside of the Golden Triangle, so in the North, the Midlands, uh, and uh, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Um, so you know so that's pretty promising. Um, you look across at other departments and you kind of think, mm, I'm not sure what's going on there. And the big one, the big one there is the Treasury. So, you, you know, apart from that big settlement for R&D in the SR, everyone else is being a little bit more guarded about the money. And the Treasury, you know, whilst there's a lot of economic analysis in this 350 page blockbuster, you're not sure how much of it is shared by the Treasury. Well, no. Uh, do they it's buy not a treasury system? document at all. Exactly, exactly. And if we if we think back to all the devolution that's happened, you know, whatever you think of it over the last 10 years, it's all been driven and coordinated by the treasury with a big financial whip behind it. And um, so, you know, that that kind of real uncertainty, you know, it's the, the treasury is the kind of ghost at the at the feast, as it were, both in terms of the money, but also that ideology and that input and and uh, i and i really really wonder what rishi thinks uh about this but also kind of the, the officials in the treasury that live and breathe this sort of stuff and and for me that feels a bit absent well there aren't that many in the treasury now who are sort of regional local focused in the way that there were in the past that's one of the things so sort of your Dan Corries and those people have been gone a long time. And I think that um, also it depends which Rishi you mean. You mean Rishi who's hiding until anything else bad comes out or the Rishi that stands next to Ben Houchin for re-election. You know, Rishi's got a regional policy agenda and it's not massively in here. The other thing about Gove is good on the things that he controls and, and they're less good on the things that he doesn't. I mean, that's just that's just life i mean the strategies that were the dead strategies that live within this document include the devolution strategy the northern powerhouse strategy all those ones that were still born apologies for the horrible um allusions but i know because i was trying to do them um and and again simon clark that relationship appears to not be working because if simon clark is the deputy um you know simon clark is supposed to be making this case in the treasury and it's not it's not being heard in the Treasury. So the other question is about the Shaps bit, because, you know, if he had three years of being responsible for, he's, apart from pissing everybody off regally with the rail stuff, he's not done anything useful. Um, and the other thing is, and I don't mean to be kind of, I'm slightly tired, so I'm feeling a bit grumpy about it all. You know, we know that Michael Gove sees himself as quite a radical reformer and this could have been a chance for him to try to de develop some of his cabinet office reforms from another perspective, right? Because of course, CLGU, HMT, whatever, whatever it is now, level, you know, I was laughing this morning that it's the LARPing department because it's cosplay of economic development. So um, le the leveling up department, DCMS, Bayes, and the bits of the treasury that aren't monetary policy should all be headquartered outside of London and should all have regional first missions you know those domestic economic departments there's no reason for dcms and bays to have different territory it's absolutely absurd so the fact that we've got the, the remains of the connectivity um mission which we've been announced about 55 times like for me if you do the central government reorganization the machinery of government changes that your domestic departments your delivery domestic departments end up into a strengthened version of the government office of the regions which, you know, the regional, like, I believe that the Secretary of State wants those things and has been prevented from being as radical as he might have wanted to have been because the worst time to launch something that's both difficult, long-term and expensive is when you're not entirely sure you're going to make it through the day as a government. I mean, it cannot be separated from the context in which it's landed, you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's interesting. I mean, the, um, uh, the issue of where's the money uh, seemed like it was the sort of dominant thing that Gove was asked about when he was touring the broadcast studios this morning, talking about the levelling up white paper. And I think he referred to Mick Jagger when he he was asked about uh, did it um, had he asked for more money from Mishy Senak, and he said uh, something along the lines of, in the words of Mick Jagger, "You can't always get what you want, but sometimes you get what you need," um, which was interesting. Uh, but as a general question, and I think I know the answer to this. 
is it possible to do leveling up on the cheap with not much money or does it as happened in germany uh after the fall of the berlin wall require a investment to the tune of sort of multiple billions each year to to, to do the job well the obvious answer is uh, no you can't do it on the cheap but you can certainly do a lot more with what you've got uh, uh I, I mean i would definitely be one of the people advocating for a german style investment program but um you know you can certainly spend money that you, that, that currently exists better uh, if you spread it around the country better and you know what you're doing and you coordinate things more effectively so you can definitely get better value from from the pound today but an awful lot more of them would be very helpful do i want 50 billion a year for a convergence program like in reunification of germany of course is it wise in the absence of accountability mechanisms not really like the german example so again my the professor that i worked with for a long time is was alan harding and he, one of his favorite things to say was countries don't become federal by mistake this is about power and where it sits and in this document it sits firmly within the corridors At a properly decentralized federal country it wouldn't have got itself in this mess to start with. Something that is fascinating is that the inequalities between the areas in the UK and the public policy response, both in terms of spatial policy and public policy, which has spatial consequences, which is all public policy. Sorry if that's a semantic definition, but it's the same thing, right? So you can't. So the housing crisis has got a spatial dimension. Or you know these things of all, of all are all expressed. In the same way that you know, I said before, we were embodied. They are all emplacened in in clever, in in interesting and different ways, right? Because place, like with the um, like with the Napoleonic Wars, you know, place always trumps history. Geography always trumps history in the end. There's layers in a place where all past, present, and future are true at once, right? Like a place, proper place stewardship involves knowing that place very deeply and its potential economic trajectories, its political economy, its structures, what can be done, the scope that can be pulled at that scale to move that place forwards. And despite local leadership being a mission, I did, it doesn't feel to me like there is a love and a trust for the subnational in this document. I know what that feels and looks like because I've done work all over the world and in federal systems, you can't get away with starving the North. I mean, you can't because you're held accountable by the lander in Germany. Andy knows far more about this than I do. You know, the lander don't let you. It's not, it's just, you know, it, it, it's, it's a feature of a totally dysfunctional centralized system, which is throwing up morbid effects now. The other irony, of course, is that this is supposed to, um, put some um, salve for the wounds of the fact that we've got one nation state, but four nations. And I don't feel that strongly either, because I don't think that this would head off nationalism at the border or, you know, of either Wales or in, or Scotland. Jen, one of Lisa Nandy's attack points uh, today was that it's all very well saying this area is going to get 20 million quid from the levelling up fund or, or whatever. But at the same time, a decade of austerity has meant that Sunderland or Bury or East Yorkshire has lost out, uh, you know, much more than that over the past 10 years. And that hampers how successful levelling up, levelling up could be. Presumably that when you speak to people in Greater Manchester about the chances of this being successful, that that comes through quite strongly, I'm guessing. Yeah, and I think it's interesting if you look at the polling around this stuff. I think I've seen two sets of polling recently that has asked people about um, either directly about levelling up or kind of things that are sort of in that ballpark. And the kinds of things that the general public start talking about are often things that used to be dealt with by the local authority. Um, they're things to do with your immediate uh, community environment, they're things about the state of your park, about how safe you feel on the streets. Uh, you know, they are things that, you know, correlate pretty closely um, with public sector cuts here. And, and, you know, some of those public sector cuts, including the police and local authorities, have been disproportionately uh, felt in the places that we're, uh, that we're talking about. So... What you see scattered from what I've seen so far, scattered through a lot of the stuff that was trailed beforehand and also the stuff that seems to be in the document, is that 
that that kind of speaking to that desire for people to have their kind of communities generally improved but when you look at it in reality you're talking about things that simply used to be delivered by public services so like the most egregious example i came across um while reading it just before we came on was um we will bring forward a, a national spring clean and it's like well if the local authorities were still collecting the bins and cleaning the parks, then we might not need a national spring clean. So, that, but so there is there is a read across there, and I think the government has probably clocked that actually to a lot of people on the ground, the things that are actually really annoying them about their pride in their place, aside from the kind of deeper structural economic things, are things that are a product of the last ten years of kind of public sector cuts, and they've sort of tried to kind of weave a bit of that into it. I think the other thing. Um, that kind of speaks a bit to what Nicola was saying then about, about devolution, is that you can talk about devolution, you can say that, uh, oh, we're going to have a devolution framework, I think it says somewhere, and it's like, if you're going to do a devolution framework, why isn't it in this white paper? Like, you're talking about giving, like, nine more deals, like, where's your framework? Are they going to be, are they going to be, bit, like, having, a, having negotiations against that framework? What does it look like? Um, or actually, in reality, have you got at least nine different pots of funding in Whitehall at the last count I made earlier this week that are all basically doing the same things that everywhere's got a bit into? Well, that doesn't look like devolution. That's the opposite. That's actually Whitehall to actually having more and more of a stranglehold over things that basic things that used to be delivered by local authorities. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I basically uh, agree with what Lisa Lundy is 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 saying there and i think it comes back to what i was saying before that you've got missions in this but then you've got other kind of strains of policies that are kind of working in direct directly against those missions so we're talking about devolution uh and one of the things i clocked in the the press release that trailed the white paper was the idea that every area that wants it can have london style devolution and that uh greater manchester and the west midlands would be trailblazers uh, who could enter talks for more powers than they currently have, presumably as a sort of means to achieving this London-style devolution. I mean, and obviously at the same time, places like North Yorkshire, Durham, Hull, Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire are entering into talks for more limited form of devolution, which might not even involve a mayor it could it could uh, be another form of devolution so if every mayor or every area in the country had the powers that Sadiq Khan has in London would that would that solve the problem you could just in in the way that Nicola has described you could dole out the billions to them instead of having it go via SW1 and that would bish bosh that would be the end of the end of the problem or is it not quite as simple as that well we've not got that far off Sadiq's powers I mean we, we haven't got exactly what he's got but we haven't turned well, he's into... got the assembly. That's the True. point. So if you, if you yeah. go back to if you go back to New Labour and how they so one of the things that this this feels to me, and I think I said this on Twitter, this feels like John Major era regional policy, right? R and D government offices, which were decentralization, not devolution, and that's as far as they went. So when New Labour came in, the beefing up significantly, so RDAs and all that, the Prescott stuff. So this is almost heralding in the Prescott stuff mm. if you're if you're at a point in time. I mean, it's not sorry, apologies for my appalling skipping about through time, but I'm just reading this white paper. So I think it's completely fair game. So sorry, <laughs> I keep getting really cross. <laughs> so um again, so if we agree that we're somewhere in the mid-90s as regards R and D spend and government offices are decentralized, not proper power and authority and not proper um rolled out then what we've got coming is the fight for london so in that reality you know the the dti became the london transport in the regions the london fight to get powers in you know that was a genuine that's a genuine um that was genuinely hard won because london felt undergoverned massively undergoverned at the time and the assembly and the setup again which we all as we all know ken livingston built and then boris used to run London was emerging out of the same primordial soup that this paper seems to be sort of in. But it's a different analysis. It's a, it's, sorry, it's a different prescription to a similar analysis. Mm-hmm. And the London, um, the London model is not without critics either, because it is kind of, uh, you know, in some ways there is, there's, there, there's 
far more power to deputy mayors. We don't have any of that. But also you've got to remember around the leadership point. My One of my favourite academic papers, you know, shout out to Kevin Orr's seminal, if mayors are the answer, what was the question? <laughs> doesn't matter how often you got to, I, and I, I, I have great respect for the mayors, but what is that about? That's about visible leadership, not about transformative change. Because mayors, are the, you know, great, the mayoralty was, um, was, was um, enforced on GM. It didn't come out of the Manchester family. Probably ambassadorial more than it is anything that has an awful lot in the way of delivery mechanisms. And when we did research yeah. in Liverpool on the city mayor when they made the transition, and it was easy to compare because it was the same guy who was, had, been, had been the leader of the council and then was the mayor. We did a thing where we analysed every 15 minutes of his day and the thing that went was neighbourhood and local level activity and what doubled was national and international activity. So it became much more like, mm. you know, it is, a, it's, as you say, that ambassadorial, bring you know, investment orientated, international, uh, you know, and that's, that's important. But mm. then how does that link? But, you know, do you need an ambassador for the missions? Well, I think there's, uh, I think you mentioned earlier on something about accountability mechanisms, and that's kind of what came back into my head when you mentioned the London Assembly. I think there has been a concern in Whitehall that if we're going to be handing over any any more power or any more money to the regions, then we need to be a bit clearer about um, how we go about holding those places to account for spending it, because in reality, the the level of capacity to actually deliver in a lot of England, especially after the last 10 years of, of hollowing out of institutions and changing of institutions, um, means that the, there's a question mark over that. And even in Greater Manchester, there are weaknesses and Greater Manchester sort of seen as being the trailblazer, right? So, um, you know, a couple of people have said to me, part of what this white paper is trying to do is demonstrate that there will be a kind of statutory way, not only of them being, being held to account, but that the mayors themselves will be held to account. What it doesn't do is really add anything formal and in terms of structure. It doesn't, it doesn't, I can't, well, I don't know. Maybe it does. I haven't read all of it yet. But I think, I think that that is a worry in their head about around accountability. It's fair, it's fair, isn't it? But I think, I think, uh, you know, before we get to accountability, a lot of the structures they're, they're suggesting by, by asking for new um, models of devolution and new, either new mayors or new governors, of course, which were long trail before the white paper came out. You know, this is pretty messy. Yeah. So, you, you know, you've got you've already got some quite messy combined authorities <clears throat> dotted, dotted around the country. I mean, Greater Manchester tends to be the exception uh, where most things run on the same job. It's quite uniform, I mean, isn't it? Yeah. Where, whereas, you know, north of time. <laughs> what's that? Um, it was what was achievable at the time? It was what was achievable at the time. But then in, now the suggestion is that some of those some of those areas that didn't want to play at the time will get their own devolution deal. Mm. And you'll get kind of historic counties. So, you, you know, you're going to go into the kind of identity space rather than the functional economic space. And that's harder to be, to, mm. well, it's harder to do lots of things. It certainly makes it harder to, to hit some of the missions, whether it's the kind of productivity stuff uh, or, or some of the other things that kind of involve liaising with other bodies that government has on the ground or or it's just harder for employers to kind of get their oh heads around God. what's happening yeah so it's business I very mean, very messy um, so and- from a business perspective so as you know i'm now an economist for a tech company in manchester i don't i'm not working in a political environment anymore so it just given me a completely different take on the whole thing because my colleagues just laugh like they just do not get why it's as complicated as it is, even in terms of actually a supplier relationship with local government, with subnational entities for economic development. You know, we sell data and I understand the economic development environment and it's still hard, you know, and you're right, the mess. And also what's interesting, just looking down the missions, you're more or less looking at a rather. So what's the opposite of a bonfire of the quangos? Because you're going to need mission control for these things. So if you don't have an audit commission function, which we don't have, you know, who, how, how are the missions, you know, how do you put the mission into drive? Through lots and lots of little bids to lots and lots of funds that but are I mean, the designed culture. from the centre. And that's the thing, the bidding culture and the deal-making culture. So, again, if we go back and we say this is 90s-ish, then you look at the Prescott kind of version. 
the Heseltinian hand is not in this. This is not mm -hmm. Heseltine's version of regional policy. And there's been a bit of a battle for the soul on that side of things. If you remember our prime minister around about the time that we, gosh, when I was still in government, was telling everybody that he was a Brexity Hezer, but he's given that up now because the opposite of a Brexity Hezer was a pork barreling deal maker. Because although there were deals in Hezer and there was, you know, bids to be done, um, there was there was something in an overarching sort of strategic something. Yeah. What has lost out in these missions? This is good. This will end up in. Um, it'll be less. Um, it'll be less clear, not more clear, of the focus in each place. I think. Yeah, and it's just not effective. Uh, I mean, the, the uh, while we were all waiting for the white paper, lots of us were reading the kind of National Audit Office report, which basically said all of these. There it is. All these multiple streams. Basically, A, aren't evaluated, aren't very effective and don't achieve what they need to achieve. And again, um, that's and another bit of ancient history because area-based policy, you know, the, region, yeah, yeah. the reason for the single regeneration budget in the early 90s was a proliferation of pots and it was impossible. You know, essentially, I have felt a bit sort of, again, the, the time series shift has been through kind of the best and worst of subnational policy you know, from the Medici's onwards today, I feel, you know, I feel like we've really been on a journey, people. I'm going to ask you, um, I'll start with you, Andy, just to ask about the the politics of levelling up and how it might work from an uh, electoral point of view. Obviously, these missions are to be judged in 2030. We're going to have a general election in uh, two years, two years time. And, and a lot of these things, you know, like reducing health inequality, boosting productivity are not things that we're going to have made much of an inroad in 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 two years so how how do you see that playing into the party politics are, are, the, are the government going to have to talk about the you know we talk about the sort of hanging basket theory of, of leveling up don't we and and uh, and you know, the short-term gains that you can make which give a government permission to be elected again to do the more longer term stuff is that kind of how you see it how you see it working yeah, very much so. I mean, it does mean that there's more emphasis. I mean, I, I, I think they're important, uh, not least in, in getting some legitimacy for, for the longer term stuff. But it does mean you get more emphasis on the short term symbolic announcement. So, you know, it's uh, you're more likely to get a return on uh, um, investing in Berry Market if the building's done in two years or saving Berry Football Club to pick uh, to pick that local authority. Um, alongside the kind of housing, the, the hanging baskets and the parks and all this sort of stuff, which does, you know, make up one of, one of the streams. I mean, it's ironic that kind of when, you know, when this was uh, first being drafted to be released around the spending review, 2030 seemed like a, a shoo-in, <laughs> uh, that this was going to be a, a, a party that would be in power for at least the next two elections. Uh, now, uh, that seems rather less obvious, but um, it probably, as a result, cranks up the short term even more. And as we've already discussed, you know, the whole levelling up white paper is now part of the short term context and, uh, you know, falls at least partly into the sort of big dog theatrics that we uh, find ourselves uh, being entertained by. Jen, I, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed and you may have noticed, too, is that I haven't heard loads from the Metro mayors reacting to the uh to the white paper thus far you may, maybe you've been paying more attention to me and have have seen that i mean i don't know what that tells us about uh what they think about the sort of the the politics of of this and you know whether it's good for them or bad for them well there was only um ben Houchin and andy street mentioned in the statement so presumably they're the yeah. ones that he wants to impress although burnham was mentioned in the press release i mean i think that there's probably uh, I mean, we'll see what the rest of the day brings. Uh, but my colleague sent me the quotes through from when Burnham was interviewed at the press conference in Manchester earlier. And I, I think what my colleague did was basically put some of Lisa Nandy's comments to him because Lisa Nandy came out kind of all guns blazing on behalf of the party at Dispatch Box and also in the press beforehand. Uh, and Andy Burnham's response was, I've got to take a pragmatic approach to this. Now, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure that all Labour mayors necessarily are quite on the same page, actually, on this. I think some of them would rather go out a bit more guns blazing, and maybe we'll see that by, by the end of the day. 
Um, but that's the kind of, uh, that's the space that Labour mayors in the north of England are in to some extent, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Because they are bidding into the pots that we're talking about. Uh, in Andy Burnham's case, he's actually got a number of quite difficult issues at the moment that he's dealing with government on where he kind of needs the government to kind of move in the direction that he wants them to, um, such as the clean air zone, which is causing him a, a kind of a massive headache. But, um, you know, longer term, I think he's probably calculated that it's better to sort of kind of cautiously welcome it rather than going to war uh, with the with the government on it. And I mean, it looks so far as though most of them are sort of generally taken, taken that approach or just being relatively quiet. Um, I don't know whether Tracy Brabin has been out and about saying anything. I think she was on BBC maybe this morning being annoyed about it, whether she'll be more annoyed by the end of the day, I'm not sure. And, and I guess partly it lays the scene for the Convention of the North next yeah. week, um, which... Uh, again, another bit of ancient history. I um, organised the last one as my last act as a civil servant and then immediately collapsed with uh, a toxic appendix the day after, which I thought was just the level of stress that you have when you try and deal with number 10 and the Metro mayors. So I would just like to make everybody think for the people that are trying to organise the Summit and Convention of the North next week, let's have a moment because that's those are hard yards because the performance side, the performance, uh, you know, the... the, the so, it is very, very difficult to choreograph um, united fronts at, in the current context. And it, and it is very, I mean, I, would, I don't envy the mayors because, yes, they can come out fighting and say they want this, that and the other. But, um, you know, I mean, look at the transport. I know, Jen, you've followed this like, you know, like a bloodhound. But, you know, <laughs> last time I was on the radio, I was saying it's like reverse supermarket sweep that the mayors are being asked to push the trolley around the supermarket, putting things back on the shelf that they thought that they'd already got, right, in their supermarket yeah. sweep. And that is a hard gig for anyone because if you're advising the mayors, if you're advising the government, and I'd, I tell you, I'd be interested. I do not understand why on the Eastern leg side they squandered that credibility so entirely for such a relatively small amount of money, given that the, the, the lead in and the lead up and the partnership work and the stakeholders and the work that had been done in TFN over years and years and options appraisals had been done. I do not understand why they squandered that um, um, goodwill because you know, I mean, Tracy Brobin's been able to be a bit more feisty because what's she got to lose? She's already lost yeah. Bradford's chance of the future being connected into into the world. You know, so I think that's why, and and I think that's the point is that the the um, you know Andy was was criticised in the pandemic of going of being too angry and all the rest of it, but it's a very very those are tough jobs yeah. because. The minute you do anything well, everybody's got a microphone up your nose saying, do you want to be the prime minister? And everything can go wrong that you've both got power over and not. Look at the, you know, children in care, look at the police and crime commissioner stuff. You know, it's really bloody hard, those jobs. And in my view, and this is a personal opinion, um, because of the way they were set up in austerity, they didn't, they were, they were unable to make the case that they needed advisors and speechwriters and spads and all the rest of it you know andy's got somebody that was with him when he was doing student politics basically carrying his bag and you go into bat against you know shaps 46 spads deep it's not <laughs> i was i was just going to say about michael gove as well i think that possibly one side element as well is um michael gove's effectiveness at actually going out and charming people uh and i mean all of the feedback that i've had back has been sort of yeah you know we feel like we've had quite constructive conversations with him da, 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 da. and actually I, I'm assuming that doesn't do that goes some way to oiling the wheels in situations like that and just kind of nudging nudging people in the direction of maybe not coming out and going too nuts about something I don't know maybe I'm wrong central um, local relations in this country is very very hard and I would argue not being done particularly brilliantly from either side Mm, mm. I, I'd just make the point. I mean, Andy, Andy Burnham and Greater Manchester have got slightly more in play as a consequence of the white paper than Tracy Brabin yeah. or Jamie Driscoll have got. I mean, it looks actually like that there's a there's the there's a there's a line that says they'll review the geography of some combined authorities. Um, yeah, I think which, not the northeast, the the north of Tyne Authority looks like it might be a a combined authority encompassing both sides of. Of the Tyne, uh, with the same level of, of gain share, which I think uh, Jamie Driscoll thinks would be a, a, a good thing. 
I, I mean, it, it, it has to happen at some point because it just mm. is incoherent at the moment. But um, but you, you know, in terms of what's in play, G- GM have got have got the possibility of a kind of you know a deeper devolution deal via via the Trailblazer announced today. It's got this kind of skills accelerator, not skills accelerator, sorry, the innovation accelerator. Which uh, um, you know has been kind of very closely aligned as as gender and with the kind of innovation GM idea, um, and and you've got kind of quite a few things fairly delicately poised around transport and uh, uh, and other agendas. So I think um, I think he's you, you know so many of those debates are alive and are going somewhere quite clear, whereas uh, uh, some of the other Labour mayors I think may you know may feel. Um, that they can be more critical <laughs> uh, without those things in play or without those things kind of obviously being granted to them through the white paper today. So, you know, I think again, that's another that, thing. That's that part of the confusion between decentralisation and devolution. Is yeah, yeah. You, you know, you don't have to earn your right to speak in a system where your powers are protected. Completely and that agree. is, you know, it's back to, you know, don't become federal by mistake, you know. They, it is the nature of the beast we indeed. operate in and, uh, you, you know, and... and I don't think I don't think it's necessary. I mean, Andy Andy is a smart politician, and uh, you know he gives as good as he gets. But it's clear it's clear where a lot of the power uh, is going to reside in in this stuff. So um, you know that is as you, as you said that is the nature of the system we're in, and uh, um, you know you you go into the office of mayor knowing that. Yeah, yeah. I'll just close with uh, one final question because uh, I think we're running a bit short of time and uh, it, it's based on a, a tweet that i saw from uh, andrew carter who's the chief executive of the center for cities think tank and he said the challenge of achieving leveling up is not about coming up with new ideas it's about making choices about what and where to focus on and having the political commitment to see it through now i mean obviously there's only so many new ideas in the world um aren't there and you know i guess if we're talking about a national a national spring clean it would suggest that there's not a huge well of inspiration for new 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 initiatives but i mean that's right isn't it what what andrew carter is 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 saying it's less about the policies than it is about the government's long-term commitment to seeing them through and you know prioritizing one thing over another thing and making sure it sure it works i mean what do you think of that andy yeah, well, I agree. I, I mean, I know Andrew well, and and uh, I think I know what he's getting at here. It, it uh, I mean, I wrote a paper before Christmas that sort of picked up some of these things. One of our biggest problems is is a lack of stability. You know, we change these institutional arrangements all the time, whether they're LEPs and, or combined authorities or county deals. And, uh, and then in a few years' time, we change them again. And sometimes, you know, it's the same government that changes them. Um, and, and obviously, when governments change um, between parties, the instinct is to kind of throw everything up in the air and uh, uh, and off you go. So so I think I think kind of that that yearning for a, a stability in the institutions that do this, as well as stability in a in a greater level of trust between the centre and the local, is is a really important thing to to yearn for. I think I think many secretaries of state, and I've worked for a few of them, you know, they all tend to think that their you know their their version is going to be the one that sticks, and you know the <laughs> The bitter experience is that that actually that's not the case. That um, we'll go around this particular block again and quite soon. That's interesting, uh, Nick. Jen, what 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 do you make of that? Is the government do do is there evidence that the government has the commitment uh, and ability to make hard choices that can make levelling up stick, whether it's by twenty thirty or even if they're around to, to do it, or you know, or further further into the future. Not sure it's obvious the government has the ability to do anything very much at the moment, does it? I mean, I, I, again, uh, being facetious, but I mean, I, I don't know how you make that judgment call, really. Um, so it is more cock up than conspiracy that we are here. But if you, again, it was far from clear that the Prime Minister was going to survive Prime Minister's questions. It was late because we were listening to Jack Dromey being described in the House as a mixture of Father Christmas and Karl Marx. I think Boris Johnson sat through those tributes wondering what his legacy is going to be, because at the moment, you know, a lot that in order for these, you know, it would be if we could look at the list and be like, oh, wasn't it marvellous because it really changed the temperature and it focused minds. But I just don't I just there's no I have no sense that that it has the governing ability. So, you know, the governing matrix at times is strong. Normally, when you mandated recently, and, 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 
you know, the, a long-term expensive project launching today, <laughs> just, you could, you know, and these things always, the links between central and local always, um, there's, there's strange networks and, and links. You talk about the clean air thing, Jen, talk about regional assemblies. There's, there's people that have been in this same space for 20 years arguing with one another and themselves. You know, even even the good work that Andy Haldane's done in this report has been rescued out of the Industrial Strategy Commission, which was established not even a different government. This this prime minister, this government. So you can't keep on smashing everything up and wondering why nothing works. You know, it's not about a change of. It's about a, it's about you know things like the contrat de ville in France has been on you know you do it for thirty years genuinely you know you work on a footprint if you support the you know Rotterdam port and Schiphol airport you do it from the war to now everybody knows they're your special priorities and you and you do it it's written into your constitution you get on with it like the point is is that you know, from the from the hanging basket to the railway line. It's all the, po you know, you asked Andy about the regional politics of it. I don't care anymore about the politics of it. The regional policy is just enthralled to the politics. We've had regional politics driving this bus for 40 years. It's got us nowhere. Yeah, I think um, the thing about stability and the, and the thing about um, having absolute political commitment to seeing it through are so fundamental. Like, I mean... I've only ever been based here and I walked into a, a kind of setup that got the things that it got done in Manchester over the last, what, 25 years, 30 years, like I'm probably going going back to the days of Michael Heseltijn, uh in central government kind of onwards, that was achieved by sticking to a plan. It, it got lots of other things wrong along the way. But the things that it did achieve were achieved by sticking to a plan over a long period of time and about finding ways around problems and being absolutely determined that that was your end goal was this and this was your strategy to try and achieve it. And um, I think what we know about this government doesn't lend itself to that kind of way of going about doing things. Uh, and then you've also got the problem of, of just, you know, that's harder when you aren't in a city that's done, you know, you, we've, we have the same council leader in Manchester for 25 years. You don't have that in central government necessarily. So you've also got that kind of factor, as Andy says, in terms of the government constantly changing and not having that that stability and that consistency. But then you've also got added into it, essentially, the kind of state that this particular administration has got into it, got itself into at the moment. So like, even if this levelling up paper was like a bit more coherent and a bit clearer in terms of its thinking, um, you'd still be left kind of thinking, well, how likely is it that this government can actually get these things through? Um, I, I kind of, I would like to be, I actually genuinely would like to be a little bit more optimistic than I'm being. It would have been nice to have finished this uh, live podcast on a more uh, optimistic tone. Well, we are where we are. But, uh, well, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. There's much more to discuss, I'm sure, and we can come back and do it in the future. And you can read all about the latest in upcoming editions of the Northern Agenda newsletter. I'm going to say thanks so much to Jen, to Andy and to Nicola for joining me and we'll see you soon. So goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify.